<clears throat> well, I will forget later, so I'm going to do it now. Um, but some of, of what I'm going to bring you today, um, I was able to glean from a message that everyone would benefit from hearing. And it was at the Shepherds Conference this last year in 2023. There's the website. They, their, their messages and, and the things, the audio and visual, well, I think it's all audio, but the things that they collect for many years now have been free. So you want to go out and listen to a sermon from the Shepherds Conference. Uh, I will tell you, I've been to a number of Shepherds Conferences. There's something about being there that um, adds a lot to it. But you can still hear some of the best preaching in the world. It's preaching by preachers for preachers. So occasionally you get a little bit different perspective. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but Austin Duncan delivered a message primarily based on the passage we're going to look at today that... Um, is just very, very, very good. And so I listened to that and uh, as well as some other research for today, but would encourage you to go out and listen to it. <clears throat> Part of what he brings out that is very, very good, um, we will get into uh, a little bit more later. I am going to steal a little bit from another chapter in Genesis that's yet to come, but for the most part, I try not to take too much because then what am I gonna say when I get there? <clears throat> but um, would really encourage you to go out there. The reason I put 2023 down there, there's multiple years out there. There's a lot of stuff to listen to out there. You want to enrich your life, go listen to sermons out there. But in the 2023 year, Austin Duncan's presentation was on Genesis 38. So go ahead and take a look at that, better words yet. Listen to that, and I think you'll, you'll like it. So where were we? In chapter 37, we begin Joseph. And we're introduced to Joseph. Uh, we put the words tattletale on him a little bit. He tended to report back on his brothers in ways that they didn't appreciate to their father. Um, his dad singles him out as being extra special with a coat of many colors and seems to hold him back to kind of be his special representative at times. Joseph has a dream about shocks and how the shocks of his brothers uh, in the grain field bow down to his. They're really impressed with that uh, and mock him and are frustrated with it. So he has another dream about stars bowing down to him, again representing his brothers, but now it's included the sun and the moon as well. He tells his dad about that, Jacob, and <clears throat> Jacob is about as impressed as the brothers were. You mean to tell me you think that me and your mother are going to bow down to you. Uh, of course, in reality, his mother's already dead, so we, you know, we had to talk through that. But nonetheless, uh, Jacob, after a while, does continue to consider, what was this dream about? And so Jacob, at one point in, in the chapter last week, sent him to check on his brothers who were grazing the flock at Shechem. And so Joseph heads up there, and he's wandering around because he can't find them. And somebody says, what are you looking for? And he says, my brothers were here. Oh, yeah, I heard them talking about going to Dothan. So he sends up, he goes up to Dothan. And you've probably heard the phrase if you've been around 
men and their car deals and things like that, they say, well, he, he saw me coming, meaning he took advantage of me. Well, they saw Joseph coming, and they definitely took advantage of him, and their immediate thought and plot was murder. Let's kill him, throw him in a pit. That'll be the end of this problem, child. And uh, Reuben, the firstborn, speaks up and says, no, 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 no. Let's not shed his blood. But let's put him in a pit. And then Reuben actually had in the back of his mind, apparently, from what it says in the scripture, that he had a plan to rescue him. So, indeed, they stripped him and they threw him in a pit. And then the brothers sat down to eat a meal. And we can tell from the way the story develops, apparently Reuben wasn't right in the middle of the conversation or wasn't there at the moment or something. But Ishmaelite traders are seen coming. They're headed from uh, the northeast over to Egypt, trading along this route that they're on, and uh, Judah gets a bright idea. Hey, you know, we can throw him in the pit, but that isn't going to do anything for us. We can actually make a profit on this deal. Let's sell him to the traders. And so, and certainly they do. <clears throat> Reuben comes back to free his brother. He's not there. He's in anguish. He goes to the rest of the brothers, and what's happened to Joseph? Well, we made some money on him. We sold him. So here's Reuben. goes along with the whole deal. They take his coat, dip it in animal blood, tell the story to Jacob. They found the coat. Is this it? You know, they know full well it's it. But they're going to let Jacob come to that conclusion. Jacob, when he realizes that the evidence shows that Joseph is dead, uh, he's beyond consolation. And we leave the chapter last week with Joseph being sold to Potiphar and Potiphar was a captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard so he sold into an important family which takes us to chapter 38 today we're going to read it in three sections but before I do just one quick comment um, and and if I remember probably won't but if I remember I'll remind you of this at the end in, in, a, in a certain way but <clears throat> it was kind of like Genesis swaps over to Joseph here in chapter 37. <clears throat> in 38, we kind of deviate over into Judah. And Judah's the fourth son. We'll talk more about that. But in this, you know, it's kind of like, well, it's all about Joseph through the end of the book. But Judah's up here getting talked about. And um, there's a reason for that. And it's a pretty significant reason that this episode with Judah comes up. And we'll even see Judah is not pushed back with the rest of his brothers into a lesser role than Joseph. And we'll see that not in Genesis, but we'll certainly see it as we looked at the consequences of thinking about Judah today. So let's begin by reading Genesis 38, 1 through 11. I'm looking for a volunteer that can do that for us. Genesis 38, 1 through 11. About that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near a man named Hireth, an Adalamite. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua, and he took her as a wife and slept with her. So she conceived and gave birth to a son, and Judah named him Ur. Again, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Onan. Then she gave birth to another son, and she named him Shelah. It was at Chezib that she gave birth to him. Now Judah acquired a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was uh, Tamar. 
But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Omen, Sleep with your brother's wife. Perform your duty as your brother-in-law and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not belong to him, so whenever he would sleep with his brother's wife, he would spill his seed on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so he put Onan to death as well. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Okay. So this is the introduction of how Tamar comes into the picture and what goes on with Judah, his family, and his sons. And so uh, the verse 1 begins with, at that time. So what time? This isn't hard. What did we last study? Joseph. So when they get back, Judah moves out. He takes off some distance. It's not very far. But he left the family, and he went up in the Adamalite area, which is about one mile from Hebron. And he's visiting his buddy Hira up there. And while he's up there, he sees this daughter of Shua, the Canaanite, in verse 2. And it says, he took her and went into her. So he's captivated by this woman, decides that that's who he's going to be linked up with, and I use that word pretty carefully because if you look at the language, I know that translations may say married, but these literally are the same words that were talked about with regard to Dinah as far as taking her, not not the the, um, kidnapping, but the way that they came together as a, and, and the sexual relationship that came about. So you can start an argument, did he really take her as a wife or did he just begin to live with her? Okay, but he went into her, and as a result of going into her that time, she conceived and had the son Ur. And so now we see Judah's lineage is beginning. Firstborn comes along. Lineage is a big deal. We, we, we think about it. We care about our children, and there's a lot of things that go along with that. But in their culture, lineage was huge. And so here we begin to see Judah and his offspring begin, and we just see two more times in verses 4 and 5, as a result of Judah being with this daughter of Shua, which by the way, we never get her name, it's not given to us, but she conceives two more sons, the first is named Onan, and the last Shelah, and Shelah was born at Chezib, which is northwest of Hebron a bit, so They were in that general area up there north of Hebron. And as a normal course of events would go, and this is more like what we see with both Isaac from Abraham and then with Jacob from Isaac, Judah arranged for a wife, took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and that is Tamar. And we don't get a lot of information about Ur, but we know one significant thing in verse 7. Ur lives evilly, is wicked in the sight of the Lord. Sight of the Lord means judgment. God looks at Ur and says, you are an evil man and brought consequences. He took his life. And that takes us down to verse 8, where Judah gives direction to Onan. Go perform your duty as a brother-in-law and raise up offspring 
for your brother. Those are important words. This is what's called a Leverite marriage. It would be codified in the law later on, but obviously it was the practice and custom and expectation now. And so from a Hebrew perspective, um, their traditions that were not Canaanites, probably the best way of saying it, the persons that would do this would be brother-in-laws. If a woman died without children, excuse me, if a man died without children, his wife then would become the wife of the brother, but the children that were born were considered in the lineage of the one that died. And so Onan's job is to go in, be a husband to Tamar, and through their interaction, produce offspring that would be able to care for Tamar. This is part of how older people were cared for. You've got children around to, to take some of that responsibility, but also that then preserves the lineage for the brother that's deceased. Well, Onan, and we, we get his motive, um, that he knew these were going to be not his children. They were going to be children for his brother's lineage. He wasn't excited about that prospect, and so he refused to impregnate Tamar. And it said the Lord was displeased, and it's not so much the method that he used to avoid impregnating Tamar, it's that he was not seeing to her needs within their culture, as well as his responsibility as a surviving brother for her. And so the Lord, again, is displeased. And that's the words the New American Standard translated. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that the Hebrew wasn't this way as well. That's an understatement. It wasn't that the Lord was just disappointed. He was displeased to the point that he took Onan's life as well. So now in verse 11, we've got Judah talking to Tamar. And what he tells her is, stay a widow. You're living as a widow, keep living as a widow, stay in your father's house. That's where a widow would go if she didn't have anyone else to take care of her until Shelah is old enough. <clears throat> now Judah's motivation here is given to us because at least a part of his motivation was he was concerned that he would lose Shelah as well. Now, we don't know why he thought that. Could it be that he thought men that are with Tamar don't live very long? Or that <laughs> I don't think Shelah's any more likely to be righteous or do the right thing in the eyes of God, just as wicked, so... We're not going to give God this opportunity to see his wickedness or what. But um, he, he withholds Shelah at this point, and maybe he really truly isn't old enough. But <clears throat> an interesting thing is that in the Canaanite Leverite marriage, another candidate would be the father-in-law. And Judah doesn't even bring that idea up. So um, don't know if he considered that, don't know what he thought about the Canaanite customs, but uh, it, they specifically would have included he himself as a potential husband to bring children into Tamar's life. So the stage is set. Judah 
becomes married to, lives with whatever the right words are, um, this daughter of a Canaanite, uh, he sees her when he's up there seeing a friend of his, and so they're out budding around, he sees her, and he takes her for a wife, they have three children, all boys, the first two boys die because of their evilness in the sight of God, leaves Tamar as a widow, and Judah out in the world. And so, um, let's look at chapter 38, verses 12 through 23. <clears throat> and once again, I'm looking for a volunteer. <coughs> In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friends Hira, the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enan, which is on the road to Timnah. <coughs> For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite to take back to the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Okay. 23. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. And so, verse 12, it begins with, Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And at the time of mourning, he went up, Judah went up to a sheep shearer. So um, his wife died, and it was after a considerable time. What's the significance of after a considerable time? Well, you do have, well, you know, the mourning comes after this. There's a considerable time before she dies. Selah grows up. There's been enough time go by that the other issues should have been resolved. So a considerable time goes by, and Judah's wife dies. And when the time of mourning was ended, he went up to sheep shears. Now, time of mourning, that, that could be a couple of things. And it really isn't clear which. Maybe it's both. But there probably was a prescribed time. Um, it was not uncommon that 
you know, after a death in the family, there would be a period of time in various cultures that automatic mourning and you probably even would be bringing shame upon yourself um, if you went about your normal business until that time of mourning was over but also Judah probably had his own mourning I mean he was captivated by her from the beginning he stayed with her they were still still um, together and so maybe it's the time it took for him to get over it whatever it was when it was done Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah he and his friend Hira, the Adamite. And uh, Tamar finds out about it, but let's talk about going up to the sheep shears. Um, so where's Timnah? Well, we really don't know. Um, it's believed it was in the hill country around Judah, around, uh, uh, up in the area where he was living. But once again, he's with this buddy, Hira, the Adamite. So... Going up to the sheep shearing, did they shear the sheep? Yes. But in the Canaanite land, um, you could even say, I'm going to the sheep shearing would be um, code words for this is a big time of fertility rituals and festivities in this cultic area. And um, I had a close friend for many years that <clears throat> every morning, sometime in the morning, his dad said, well, I think I'm going to town. Well, he did go to town, but that isn't what he was telling everybody. Um, he had a problem with alcohol, and that was his code for I'm going to town. I'll start drinking beer, and I'll come home however I can, whenever I can, because I'll be drunk before the day's over. Well, this could be kind of similar in that when they went up for the sheet shearing, you've got all these pagan fertility practices and and festive festivities going on and those these often involved cultic or religious prostitution from the temple it gets mentioned before we're done and so here's Judah going off to the sheep shearing and certainly they're going to shear the sheep but it very well probably was more than that realize that Judah isn't living at home anymore He's separate from the family. We haven't talked about any interaction with the family through this whole time of Judah's existence. Now we will see later on when, they, when the brothers get together to deal with the famine, he's a part of that. But at this point, he's up there. He's married a Canaanite woman. Remember how that worked out for Esau? You know, Isaac and Rebekah were not happy with Esau's Canaanite wives. And so he's getting into this Canaanite culture up there, and he's got this friend, um, the Adamonite, Hira, that is not helping any probably. We don't really know, but it certainly <laughs> makes it questionable. So in verse 14, Tamar is told about this, and her reaction is she got rid of her widow's garments, and she redressed with a veil and a wrap, and the veil is probably the key thing, but nonetheless, she sat in the gateway of a name, which was uh, on the way to Timnah, and she's there in the gateway, showing herself, making herself available as a prostitute is what you would think when you saw her. And it, the, the, we get this note in here that she had seen that Sheila had matured, but no action is coming toward him taking her as a wife. 
And so she's being denied her expected future, expected by Judah's comments, expected by culture, both of the Israelite culture, the non-Canaanite culture, and the Canaanite culture. And so she takes herself up there. She clearly has a plan. And the plan works out in her direction. Judah sees her as she's coming through the gate, as he's coming through the gate. And he thinks of her as a harlot because her face is covered. That's the veil. And so in verse 16, he turns aside and says, let me come into you, which is, I, I want to be physically linked with you. And he did not know that it was his daughter-in-law because her face was covered. And so Tamar goes through what was probably a very typical interaction with the prostitution world. Okay, what are you going to give me? What's the payment? And this prostitute negotiation goes on with Judah saying, well, I'll send a young goat from the flock. And Tamar essentially says, well, I don't see any goat. How do I know this is going to happen? I'll need a pledge. And so in the negotiation, he says, well, what do you want? And she said, well, give me your walking stick or your staff, your cord, and your seal or signet. And when I hear that, I think of um, the movies I saw as well as what I've heard described in the Roman era, important people had a ring, and when they wanted to seal something up, they'd put a daub of wax on a letter or whatever and stick the ring into it. Um, pulling out of what I heard from Austin Duncan's sermon and also additional information from what I read from John MacArthur, that that would have been atypical in this era. In this era, the signet was typically, according to John MacArthur, a cylinder. And I don't know if they rolled it in wax or I don't know what they did with it, but typically it was worn. The richer you were, the more significant that signet would be, but also the cord that held it would be made of finer and finer materials based on your wealth. And we know Judah was part of a family that was not poor, but we don't know what his personal wealth was. But so the cord and the signet probably go together, and then the, his staff would be probably recognized and personalized maybe in various ways. And so he gave her what she asked for. She allowed him to come in, and sure enough, she becomes pregnant as a result of this interaction with Judah. So when this act is over, in verse 19, I believe it is, she arose and departed, went home, put on the widow's garb, and she's back just living like the widow at home with her father. And so in verse 20, we get into something that's almost comical. So Judah sends his goat, but he doesn't do it himself. He sends his Adulamite friend, Hira, we probably, and... He takes this goat and he's looking for this lady that was the temple prostitute that was in the gate. And so he can't find her. So he starts asking around. Where is this lady? Men start saying there was no temple prostitute here. Haven't seen one. So he's got this problem. He was sent on an errand to retrieve what was given as a pledge for Judah. Pay the lady for her services and bring the stuff home but he can't find her 
And so he goes back to Judah in verse 23. And Judah says, let it go. She can just keep the stuff. We're going to be a laughing stock if we keep doing this. Can you imagine this scene? Here's Judah trying to pay off a prostitute through his friend. His friend's going around going, hey guys, where's the prostitute? And they're going, what are you talking about? I mean, you keep asking that long enough, and it's not going to be socially a good situation for you, is it? And so Judah says, okay, cut our losses. We're going to be quiet and let this thing go. And uh, he, he even self-justifies in the comments here. After all, I sent the goat. The fact you couldn't find her is not our fault. And so they kind of close that chapter believing that it's done. So now let's read verses 24 through 30. Who can do that for us? <clears throat> now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Sheba. And he did not have relations with her again. It came about at the time that she was giving birth, and behold, there, was, there were twins in the womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread in his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and he was named Zerah. Okay. So three months go by. What happens in about three months? Pregnancies become apparent if they're not already known. At least to the mother, and certainly in this case, by the time you hit three months, others are going to start saying, uh, what's, uh, what's happening here? And so word gets back to Judah. Tamar's living at home as a widow, right? So there's no opportunity for her to become pregnant, but she's pregnant. What's the conclusion? And they say it the way that they see it. She's played the harlot, and she's with child. And that comes back to Judah. Judah has a quick reaction. Bring her out and burn her. Now let's, let's talk for a minute. Why would he want her put to death? Okay, right. I mean, that's a possibility. Do we know that for a fact? It's not said here, but um, there's two people depending on which culture you want to look at that could be on the hook, but at the top of the list is Shelah, and he's trying to keep her from having Shelah as her husband. We can put an end to this whole mess. Sounds a little bit like Joseph, doesn't it? Let's, let's kill him. That's a solution. Don't like him. Don't like what he's doing. Don't like what he's dreaming. Don't like what he's saying. Don't like how he tattletales. Get rid of him. That problem's solved. Well, that's not the way it's going to work. Um, there's also another person in terms of the local culture that could be on the hook, and that's Judah himself. He doesn't want to get caught with, well, there's one other answer here, Judah, if you're not going to give Shelah. And uh, so he, uh, 
we, we don't know that that's what he's thinking, but the other piece that's here is burn her is not the typical execution method for these kinds of things. And so this is a pretty extreme response, and it's really quick. There's one thing that Judah doesn't do that all wise people do before they pass judgment. And what's that? At least it's not recorded. Ask questions. Um, that's a huge thing. Um, I, I even, I really liked, and I've used this in my personal life as well as my professional life a few times, when trained at Wolf Creek about determining um, punishment or consequences for things. There was one question you had to ask at the end. It's like, what don't I know? What haven't you told me? What's not come up in our questions? that's important to this. What do you wish I knew that I don't know? That's a huge question. And sometimes you find out, oh, there is more to this story that I didn't know what question to ask. But Judah's not asking any questions. And, and in some senses, I think that's providential on God's part because he's going to use that situation. But so while she's being brought out of her father's house, that's where she was to stay as a widow. So the there's other people involved. We don't know who they are. Was it the community? Was it his family? Whose families? What's going on? But she's being brought out. And it's interesting in verse 25. Look at that with me. The way the New American Standard says it is that while she was being brought out, well, it was while she was brought out, that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I'm with child by the man whom these things belong. So that word sent in there is kind of interesting. It might have even been communicated by a distance. Take these things to Judah. These are the words you tell him. It's by the man who owned these things that I'm pregnant. Regardless, um, when and whose are these, Judah in verse 26 recognized them. And there's something significant right here that occurs. And Judah is... I'm certain um, being led by God's Spirit, by the Holy Spirit here to some extent, but this, this is kind of astounding that he doesn't just say, oh, wait a minute, um, maybe we want to put this under the rug or something. He doesn't do that. But he says, when he recognized him, she is more righteous than I. And he doesn't go back to the failure to get the goat to her or anything else or even the fact that he went to a prostitute or treated her like a prostitute. However you want to say that, the thing he goes to, her, goes to is, I did not give her my son, Sheila. And so when Jacob, I'm sorry, when Judah does that, um, he's clearly seeing his own sin and seeing that she has been wronged egregiously, was it okay for the prostitution to occur? No. I mean, we're not, we're not condoning any of the ways that these people set about getting things set right, but he realizes the start of this was me. And is this repentance? Well, it's certainly very, very close to it if it's not outright repentance. He's looking at this going, my sin the condemnation of her goes away in what's going on right here. She is obviously spared. And 
he also did not have any more relations with her. So he did not take her as a wife, but now she had the offspring that would give her what uh, she needed within the society. And it came about in verse 27 that at the time she was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. Kind of goes back to the previous time with Rebecca. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth one put out a hand, and the midwife tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. So that's going to be the child of the promise, or the child, not of the promise of Abraham, but the child that was going to be in the inheritance line as firstborn. But it came about as he drew back his hand, and behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself, and he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. And... I've had fun looking up the names. I don't know if that's the right word, fun. But it's been interesting looking up the names that are used. Uh, Perez means breach or breaking in or breaking through. And uh, then when Zerah is born, his name means rising. So we had a great question some weeks back. Um, and it's another great question today. So what is the point of this account why is it here, and why do we even interrupt Joseph's story, if you want to look at it that way, to start talking about Judah? And I will tell you, it's not just Joseph's story. Judah is definitely involved very significantly in the going forward of the accounts we're going to see in the rest of Genesis. And also, we ought to keep in mind, Moses is writing here, and there's more to this uh, book of Genesis, and so you have to put all the pieces together, and we're just getting a snapshot in the middle. But as Moses is writing, he's talking to the people about their own identity. This is who you are and who you were a part of. To really get the significance of Judah in the Israelite story and far beyond, we are going to have to go forward and look at what happens downstream and what's very significant. And this is where I'm going to borrow a little bit from Genesis 49. Turn over there. And I'm going to set the context before we read it for you, so don't just start reading. But we're, we're going to actually be looking at verses 8 through 12. But in Genesis 49, this is, this is next to the last chapter of the book of Genesis. And we are getting... Jacob's <coughs> pronouncements upon his sons, who with some modification as we go forward, even here, um, are going to be the patriarchs of the 12 tribes, right? And so he's going down through his sons in birth order. And we're not going to read all of them, but the first one is Reuben. And Judah... I'm sorry, Jacob calls Reuben his firstborn, but if you read it, you'd find out he's disqualified to receive the rights of the firstborn. Why? Do you remember why Reuben was disqualified? He slept with his dad's concubine or wife, and that's it. You're not, you're not going to fulfill that role. It's taken away from you. The second and third brothers are Simeon and Levi. And they too are disqualified. Do you know why? 
What did they do? But yeah, they avenged Dinah. And how did they do it? They killed the whole city and looted it with their brothers. The brothers got involved after the murder, but these two went in and put to death every man by the edge of the sword. And so they're disqualified. The fourth son is Judah. Now what did Judah do? He became, he became in the Canaanite culture. He married a Canaanite and keep going. What else did he do? Well, no, no. Let's talk about in what we read in 37. I mean, he slept with a prostitute. Didn't know it was his own daughter-in-law. So now, I mean, it wasn't with knowledge. So it's kind of hard to lay a hardcore incest charge on it. But it kind of sounds that way. And didn't get her paid and didn't arrange for her marriage to his last son. So you would think maybe he would be disqualified, but let's read eight verses 8 through 12. Who's got that for us? Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vest vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. So, what kind of picture do you get that Jacob says will be Judah's future? Very positive. What? Powerful conqueror. Powerful conqueror, ruler, scepter. He's going to receive tributes. Yes, Judah is not disqualified like his brothers. And why can only be that God gave to Jacob an understanding of who he was choosing for what roles. Go over to Ruth chapter 4. Yes. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the truth. I didn't think about that, so I didn't investigate that, so I don't know. But I will tell you the way I took it was, he's so rich, he uses wine like water. Okay. Now, that's the way I took it. Okay. I just wondered if with the recognition of his sin there, if that wasn't the first sign of repentance and then bringing back in with his future interactions later on. I don't know the answer. I, 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 I would hesitate to think that's likely, but it very well may be. And, and I'll be studying that more when we get over here. Good question, but I'm sorry I don't have a quick, quick answer to that. Go to Ruth 4, verses 10 through 12. Ruth chapter 4, 10 through 12. Go ahead. You got it. Ruth 4, 10 through 12. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Mahalan, I have brought, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, 
that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were witnesses at the gate, or sorry, who were at the gate, and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the, the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in the in Ephrathath and be known, renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. That's an interesting blessing. May your house be like what? Perez. Perez. Born of Tamar. No doubt we're talking about the same Perez. And so here we see, carrying forward through the lineages, this is considered a blessed child that came out of the union through a prostitution-type interaction between Judah and Tamar. This is a blessing that you'd have a house like Perez had. Um, if we were to go over to Matthew chapter 1, and I'm not intending for us to turn there, but in the lineage that we are given for Jesus himself, it includes two people. Perez, by his mother being Tamar, and then Boaz, born of Rahab the harlot. That's an interesting lineage for the Christ. Now let's go over to Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. We know what the book of Revelation is. It's the revelation of John. He's given this image while he's on the Isle of Patmos. He gets letters to pass on to the churches, but he gets this astounding vision of the things that would go on in heaven as God makes the transition from the fallen world to the new heaven and the new earth. And there are multiple steps. There's a great tribulation that's a part of that. There's many things. And this is one of the scenes <clears throat> in heaven that John sees. Revelation 5, 1 through 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it and five and five sorry and sorry one of the elders said to me weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals what was his name? How was he? How was the one who opened the scrolls described here? The root of David. The root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
And so when we look at who Jesus is, one of his titles goes back to this same Judah that lived out what we read in chapter 38. We see in his lineage that he also is of the house of David. It was necessary, it was a requirement that the king be from the tribe of Judah. David sat on the throne. It was necessary, according to the scriptures, that the Messiah would come out of the tribe of Judah. And so as God is choosing which tribe is going to be the one that gives birth to, that out of that tribe rises up the very Messiah, Jesus the Christ, we're told it's going to be out of the tribe of Judah. And when the description is given to us in 49 of Genesis that Jacob, I'm sorry, that Judah will be a lion, here's the fulfillment of the lion aspect of Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the picture we see of Jesus during his first time on earth incarnate is not the picture we see in the book of Revelation, is it? We see in the picture in Revelation a conquering warrior hero who comes in righteousness and judges the world in righteousness and is placed on the throne of David to be seen there for eternity ruling over the world. Now, it's interesting to us, to me at least, that when God is providing for the lineage that's going to be the one that results that Jesus will come out of, he didn't pick somebody that was really wonderful, did he? Should we be surprised by that? Yeah. Well, at first glance you might be, but what other choice did he have? Who is righteous? There's none righteous. No, not one. So when God is redeeming mankind and he brings the redemption, he brings together in Jesus, in his incarnation, the flesh, and I don't mean the sinful flesh, I mean Jesus lives out what it means to live in flesh and does what no man before him after or after has ever done. And that's out of his own personage lives righteously without sin. We can, there, isn't a, there isn't an ancestral story that God could have picked to provide a mother for Jesus that would not have had things like this in the background, right? That's who mankind is. And yet, it shows us who the father of Jesus Christ really was. Because out of him being very God in the flesh, living a life apart from sin, tempted in every way as we are, according to the word, he did that despite the heritage from the earthly side of the union that produced him. And so Judah is not a small player. Judah is not just another brother that erred. But God, for his own purposes and his own reasons that are not explained, Judah is the one chosen to live out being the patriarch of the tribe that Jesus came out of as far as his earthly parentage is concerned. 
And we will see before we're done with looking at Joseph that Judah plays another key role more in line with the righteousness that he showed or the understanding of righteousness that he showed by saying, wait a minute, I'm the big sinner here. It was not her that was the most unrighteous. She is more righteous than I. Out of my sin, I deserve the condemnation. And Judah will play a similar role a little later on, but I'm going to save that for a little later on so that I have something to say that day. Questions, comments, thoughts? Yep. Because of what happens later on. So <coughs> I just want to really big things about God he specializes in the human sinful situations. Whether it's great or small, comprehensive. But he chooses to be there for so long. He does. It's evident all over the world. Yep. And and one of the things that I thought I was going to run shorter on time, so I, I started to look these up, and then I know the verses, but I can't just turn right to them. But it is clear. It's in Deuteronomy 7, 7 or something like that, 7, 6, where God makes it clear. I didn't choose you because you were great. I chose you because you were the least. It gives me more glory. In the New Testament, we get the same time, same thing. Not many wise, not many whatever. Not many, I can't quote that verse very well. But... God didn't choose the people he redeemed because they were somehow worthy of it. Just like he chose the Jews because they were the least of all nations, he chose those that he redeemed not because they were great, but because they were weak. And out of their, their weakness, real compliment to y'all, y'all weak, out of their weakness, he gets glorified the most. And so, yeah, it's... it's Go listen to that sermon. That's great advice. You've heard it. Yeah, there's some substitutions that occur over time based on God's... Yeah, sons of Joseph get in there. Yeah. Yeah, Joseph really gets a double allotment in that regard. His two of his sons are are the ones that are chosen instead of some of the other of his brothers. Um, but interestingly enough, we're, we're going to hear a lot about Joseph. And when we leave the book of Genesis, we're going to say, oh, this, this is all leading up to what Joseph did in Egypt, which it is because that's the, 
the events that Moses is reminding the people of that led to them being on the Exodus and all of the things that occurred on the Exodus. But when we're all done, Joseph is not, he's important. I'm not trying to diminish Joseph, but Judah's really the big player. Not Joseph. Joseph has a huge role that God uses him for to get the people to Egypt and to save them from starvation and to set up the exodus. But, but Judah is really the big player before we're done. Well, let me close a word of prayer. Father, we know we're not much. Sometimes we put on airs and we put on uh, the clothes that we wear and the things that we do to, to be a normal person and to have our facade in proper place. And yet, Lord, when we look in the mirror, we know who we are. We are sinners. We are the least. Um, we're, we're, we're not much to talk about apart from what you've done in our lives. And what you've done in our lives moves us into being uh, joint heirs with Christ, receiving all the blessings from heaven, as we read in Ephesians, every spiritual blessing, all that we need, and so, Lord, um, you change us, and it's for your glory. Let us glorify you at every turn as we live out our lives as your redeemed. Lord, let us never think it is something that we are or something that we have that makes us special. It is all Christ, all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.